Hello, fellow dog-powered sports enthusiasts. This is Chelsea Murray, and you are listening to Positively Dog-Powered, a podcast that dives deep into the real world of positive reinforcement training and dog-powered sports. All right, everybody, we are back for another episode, and I've got another fabulous guest with me today, Robert Forto, who's a professional dog trainer and a musher. Robert, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. So you have an interesting story and in how you got involved in dogs. You started with just a couple Huskies and kind of built your team up from there. Talk to us a little bit about how you got started and what your interest was in the sport. Well, I got my first Siberian Husky in 1987. I was 16 years old and uh, started with that dog thinking it was just going to be a pet. And later on, it went into competition obedience. AKC trials, that sort of thing with a Siberian Husky. It uh, proved to be quite difficult, but it was quite a bit of fun. Later on, I went to college at Portland State and uh, was going to become a veterinarian. That was my lifelong goal, but I thought, I don't want to sit in a vet office all the time. So I I started training dogs in the park. Uh, Pretty much, I showed up to the parks in Portland with a business card, a leash, and a smile. And as they say, the rest is history, and I'm still doing dog training all these years later. I love that. And what drew you specifically to Siberian Huskies? Because I, too, live with a Nordic breed. I have Malamutes myself, and it's not a common breed that you see in the obedience ring. So I love hearing other people's stories about kind of what drew them to the breed initially. You know, I really don't have a story with that particular dog. His name was Axel, kind of in the height of the Guns N' Roses era in the late 80s. But uh, later on, of course, I was very attracted to those dogs. And I had I had Siberians. I still have Siberians today. And they're just they're just the dog that uh, that uh, that brings me close, I guess. Yeah. And how long into owning a Husky did you start getting involved in dog powered sports? Oh, it was several years. I guess it was 92 or 93. So Axel at the time was probably five or six years old. And as I said, I was living in Portland and I something came across uh, email or, uh, you know, one of those chat rooms back in the day where a person was selling some Siberian Huskies in Georgia, but they were from sled dog lines. Now, I didn't know much about mushing at that point. So I jumped in my Little Dotson 280Z and drove pretty much 72 hours straight from Portland to Georgia. Showed up at this lady's dog lot. I'd never been involved with anything mushing. And the first thing she said to me, I remember like it was yesterday, she said, would you like to go for a ride? And I said, sure. So she hooked up her dogs uh, on an old Seiko cart. It's a kind of a cart that you sit in. They don't have those much anymore. And she hooked up eight or ten dogs. I don't remember exactly. And we took off through the woods. And I came home with two little puppies, Rutger and Reich. And that was the foundation of of my mushing kennel way back then. How cool is that? The rest is history, right? It's kind of that yes. snowball effect. You start with two and <laughs> it's hard to, yes. hard to stop after that. Right. So you got your two dogs and started training them for all kinds of sports, including dog-powered sports. But at the same time, you were also helping clients with their dog training needs. And you were doing some interesting things in terms of aggression cases while you lived in Denver. Talk to us a little bit about that. 
Yeah, so here we are, I, I guess, mid-90s now, and fast forward probably 10 years or so after that, and I moved from northern Minnesota, uh, another very interesting story, which I'm sure your, your listeners would like to hear. I was living in Duluth, Minnesota, and was pretty involved in the sled dog game at that point, doing a lot of mid-distance racing, uh, you know, the circuit up there in, in the north, Minnesota, Wisconsin, northern Michigan, and so on. And I, again, I was on a chat room. This time it was in, on Yahoo. And for folks, younger folks that are listening, they probably have no idea what that is. It's much different than, than Facebook or WhatsApp or anything <laughs> like that. And it was a Saturday morning and uh, it was a dog centric chat. And a lady came on and she said, is there anybody here that can teach me how to teach my dog how to pull my kids in a wagon? And I, you know, I popped up and raised my hand or whatever you did back then. And, and we started talking and she had Malamutes. And I said, hey, how about I come out and teach you how to teach your dog to do that? And that lady eventually became my wife, Michelle. And uh, again, the rest is history. But um, uh, at some point, uh, we uh, decided to move in together in, in Colorado. So I packed up and moved to uh, to Colorado from Minnesota. Much more opportunities for training and whatnot. And with there, we started Denver Dog Works, I guess, in 2006 or so. And uh, we started doing a lot of um, aggressive dogs and that sort of thing. And, and at the time, that was the height of the pit bull ban and all of that. So uh, since I had been training for so many years, you know, that, that sort of became my specialty. That's, you know, that's, a, first of all, I love the fact that you met your wife through training and through dogs yeah. and dog sledding. That's just perfect. Um, but, you know, with, when it comes to aggression, that's something, you know, as a dog trainer, we see some behavior cases here in Georgia as well. And it's, it's taxing on you, you know, emotionally, it's really draining. The clients you're working with are also complicated. The dogs are complicated. Focusing on that, I know that that can take an emotional toll on you. And you ended up going into court and being kind of an aggression expert for dogs, right? Yes, several times I went into court. And, and one case in particular, you mentioned Georgia. Uh, I worked with a client that was in Atlanta, and it was a um, sort of a, a, a dog bite case in, in like a factory or a warehouse or something like that. And I remember flying down there and uh, you know, working through that case. And, and thankfully, it was settled out of court and nothing happened to the dog or anything like that. But uh, dogs and um, uh, uh, courts often don't go well for the for the pup, unfortunately, because, you know, in today's society, everybody is so litigious about everything. Everybody wants to sue everybody for everything, unfortunately. And, and often dogs are on the wrong end of the stick, as they say with that. And and uh, I think it's getting better. Uh, but, you know, interestingly, at that time, that was sort of the height of uh, the TV dog trainers, Caesar Milan and, and those types of things. And, you know, a lot of people thought, well, my dog's aggressive. I see this on TV on Friday nights. I think I need to have that same sort of training with my dog. So things sort of snowballed with that. And there was a lot more aggressive labeled dogs at that point than there probably should have been because of what they saw on television. Yeah. And a lot of mishandled dogs because of what they saw on television. Yes, of course. 
Yeah. Well, so you, after you were working in Denver for a while, you guys ultimately decided to move up north and truly live the dream. And you guys are living in Alaska right now, training and running dogs. What what sparked that next, you know, big move for you guys in the sport? Well, as I said, I was in the mushing game in Minnesota for many years, but I always had that Iditarod dream sort of in the back of my mind. And at, at the time, living in Denver, our kids were still pretty young. They were still middle school and early high school, and we didn't want to move to Alaska until it was time. And I remember uh, I came up for Iditarod, and I was working with my buddy Hugh Neff, and I came up to help with him. And and uh, on on our on our time together, you know, during Iditarod, he took off on the trail, and I was staying with a realtor friend. His name was Dave Shear. And he said, right before I left, if you're ever interested, you know, typical realtor talk, he said, if you're ever interested in property in Alaska, here's my card. Give me a call. So, of course, I did a rod starts in March. I went back home and I started lighting the fire with the family. I said, you know, Alaska is calling. It sure is beautiful up there. And by June, I had contacted Dave. And by July, my daughter and I flew up. And uh, saw the place where we're in now, and I left it in the hands of a 12-year-old. It was a Saturday morning, and I said, okay, Nicole, I want you to text your mom. Mom was back at Denver Dog Works doing group classes and the typical Saturday things. And I said, I want you to text your mom and give her your decision about moving to Alaska. I don't want to have any part of it. I don't want to be blamed for it years later. So Nicole texted mom, and she texted mom. We're moving to Alaska, and uh, we uh, we laid some money on the kitchen counter, and I moved up in August, and here we are. That is so amazing, getting the whole family on board. <laughs> of course, yes. Now, I know that your wife helps out with the dogs. Are your, your kids involved in, in the dogs and running the dogs as well? Yes, my daughter still works with us. Uh, she, uh, she ran, Junior, I did her on twice, uh, so she has that mushing experience. And then after junior Iditarod, after uh, graduating high school, she moved down to Anchorage and she was done with dogs. She, you know, she grew up with it from age two or three up till, you know, 18 or 19. She said, I'm done with this. I'm out of it. So she went away, uh, you know, down to the city for a few years. And just recently she came back up to work with us again. And uh, now she's a full-time trainer with us. And as you said, my wife, Michelle, she, she is our lead trainer. She does pretty much all of the training these days and we have a couple other contract trainers as well okay so talk to us about that Iditarod dream uh you working towards that are you doing focusing more on long distance races now and starting to get your head in the game for that you know that's that's an interesting story uh I came up thinking I'm going to run Iditarod in you know whatever year it was 2012 2013 and as I said uh, my daughter took the reins and ran junior I did her out a couple of years, so we really focused on her. But after that, I, I lost a little bit of the spark. Uh, I, I started doing other things. Uh, I started doing more di- mid-distance races and teaching at the university, which I know we're going to talk about in just a little bit. But uh, it's still there. You know, I think the oldest I did a rod start was mid-70s. So I still have 20 years or so before I have to call it quit so i think i'm okay yeah you you've got some time and you've got some help there to make it happen which is great right for sure 
So let's talk about that university work that you're doing. You started a very cool program that I know kind of took a little bit of a hiatus with COVID, but talk to us about this course that you designed. So I went back to school again. uh, My daughter was firmly entrenched in this story. As I mentioned, she graduated high school and she said, hey, dad, wouldn't it be cool to take a college course together? And I had been out of school for 20 plus years. Uh, I graduated in 96, and I guess this was about 2014. And she says, I don't know. I said, I don't know, Nicole. I don't know if it's time. And she goes, I dare you to take a college course with me. So, yes. So, so an 18-year-old a daring dad. So we drove down to UAA. She enrolled in her course as a freshman, and I enrolled as a, a very old 44-year-old in the HPER department. And uh, jumped in with two feet. I, I graduated in 2018, I guess, in uh, health and health, health, physical education and fitness degree with a congate of outdoor leadership. And part of my internship was to design some type of course for outdoor leadership students. And what we did is we designed what we call the Winter Multi Sport Expedition, which is over spring break, and we take we took students out on about a 170-mile trip via fat bike, dog sleds, and snow machines, and we sort of traced the first few um, checkpoints of Iditarod. So we started at Willow, went to Yetna Station, went to Eagle Song, Quetna, and back. And the, the, the real uniqueness part of this is a lot of these guys obviously had never been in the backcountry. Most of these were city students. So each day they had to be on some other type of transportation. So if they started day one on the dog sled, day two would be on a fat bike, day three would be on snow machine, and so on and so forth. And it was one of the coolest trips I'd ever done. And I, I think it's the only course in the country that's designed that way. That's super cool. I mean, that must be kind of intimidating for some of the students if they are a little more used to city life getting in the back country like that. Yeah, it, it was a life changing experience for all of us. And still, I, I talk to all of those guys all the time. Uh, one of my best friends out of that program, Miranda, uh, worked with us after graduation as a handler and is a great friend of ours and is now part of our, our uh, nonprofit that we just started this summer. And yeah, it was truly life-changing for everyone. That's really cool. Really cool. So right now in your mushing career, you certainly have more dogs than you had when you started. And so I want to kind of pick your brain today about building those teams, because a lot of our listeners are starting off with, you know, maybe one or two dogs looking to expand potentially up to four and six dog teams. And for someone who's just getting started, the idea of that can be pretty intimidating. Now, as a dog trainer yourself, you know that when we talk to our pet dog people, we put a big focus on really making sure that the dog understands what they're supposed to do. You know, we teach basic behaviors in low distraction environments, make sure they understand it. And then we take that skill on the road, so to speak, to help the dog generalize. Now, when we've got multi-dog teams and larger teams, we just have less time to really focus that individual work on each dog in the team. So I wanted to talk to you first about the importance of those foundation cues and what your training process looks like 
as you're starting those younger dogs, putting, you know, one-on-one time with them to help them learn the ropes? Great question. Uh, I think there's a lot to unpack there. Uh, I'm a, a big proponent in getting dogs that you're able to manage. And you see a lot of dog mushers will, uh, you know, grow too quickly, too fast. Too many dogs too fast. They'll, they'll start with one or two, just like all of us. And it, it's sort of like potato chip syndrome. Uh, you, <laughs> you know, you have two. Next thing you know, you have a dozen. So I always caution people, especially if they're just getting involved in the sport, to only get what you're able to manage, not only in time, but also money. Mushing is a very expensive lifestyle for sure. And then once you have your core set of dogs, whether that's two dogs, four dogs, six dogs, ten dogs, whatever it is, make sure you have the time to be able to spend with each one of those dogs. And, and and that's not just time on the trail or in harness or, or anything like that. You really have to get out there and bond with your dogs. You have to build that connection. And it's, it's sort of that same methodology that you have when you get a puppy, you know, your typical pet dog puppy. You want to make sure that, you know, they have experiences and are socialized and, you know, everything is good. Same sort of thing with, with, um, with working dogs, but it's on a much grander scale because you're asking them to do something that, you know, your typical golden retriever, Labrador, or whatever is not asked to do. And that is to think for themselves. Uh, most pet dogs, they look to you as, as the owner for guidance, whereas often uh, sled dogs are looking to themselves and the team for guidance. You know, the team dogs are responding to the other team dogs and Everybody in the team is sort of responding to the lead dogs and so forth, whereas that team development is so key, and that just comes with spending time with them, socializing them, working with them, bonding with them, all of that, and then allowing dogs to be dogs. That's a very important part of that, and a lot of, unfortunately, I've got a lot of working dog folks don't allow their dogs to be dogs. You know, it's all work all the time, and I, and I think that's where a lot of issues arise is they don't allow that uh, companionship to develop amongst each other, et cetera. Yeah. Well, and that team dynamic is so important. Something that you just said that was really interesting to me that kind of sparked a, a question is, you know, when we've got the smaller teams of one, two, maybe even three dog teams, we're, while the dogs are certainly relying off some instincts of their own out on the trail, we're teaching very specific skills and really with those small teams, all of those dogs are really responding to us and our signals that we're giving them versus a larger team. You mentioned them feeding off each other a little bit more. So obviously that's going to change how you train each dog, how much of their learning is done via association from other team dogs versus you teaching something individually. I believe much more than people think uh, is learned by the dogs themselves. I think the dogs are the true teachers, especially in mushing, because it is so much association with each other. Uh, I, I'm sure you're familiar as a dog musher how easy it is to have a real strong leader teach another dog how to be in lead itself. And I, I've done, I don't know how many times where I've hooked up uh, younger dogs in the middle of two very strong leaders. So you're running three leaders at a time uh, with the younger, more impressionable dog in the middle. And you will see it happen on the trail. And it, it is such a cool experience uh, 
where these dogs are teaching the other dogs. And you'll see them almost kind of kick them over to the left or kick them over to the right. And you can see the dogs responding to commands, whether they're commands from, from the musher many feet behind them or the dogs themselves responding to each other. So if you say deer haw and their ears will perk up and they'll, and they'll kind of look over and they'll say, okay, what's my buddy doing on the left of me or my, what's my buddy doing on the right? And they'll learn very quickly from each other. And I think that's one of the cool things about dog mushing. It's just how that team dynamic develops and you can get into that flow. And, and before you know it, you're just rocking and rolling. So talk to us a little bit about that training process, because obviously with more dogs, you are doing probably a little bit more of that learning via association. Do you tend to start each puppy off in the same way and then see how they develop before placing them in a specific position? Or do you kind of try a little bit of everything with them? You know, it's definitely been a trial by error process. When I first first started in the sport, I had no idea what I was doing, just like everybody else. And I thought, okay, well, we'll we'll uh, harness break them. I know it's that's kind of a, a derogatory term, but it's the correct term. Is we'll break them in harness, teach them how to pull, and that's typically the hardest part of any uh, training program for a sled dog. Once they learn how to pull, they're okay. But later on, I learned genetics plays a huge role in this. And uh, as I uh, acquired better dogs and, and um, you know, learned which dogs work best from which kennels and who I dealt with in, in purchasing dogs, things became much easier for that, uh, that early learning process. You know, it, 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 going back to pet dogs, it's a heck of a lot easier to teach a Labrador retriever how to hunt than it would be to teach a German shepherd how to, I don't know, retrieve ducks or something like that, something totally opposite of their genetic profile. And that's the same sort of thing with with sled dogs. If they have the genetics, they have that internal wiring kind of firing off already, it's a lot easier for training. Yeah. So when you've got your puppies and you're trying to decide who's going to be a good fit on the team and maybe what team position suits them best. Are you looking for specific traits within each dog, certain temperament traits? How do you kind of go about deciding what spot on the team will be best for them? I typically try to train all of our dogs to be potential leaders because you don't know if something's going to arise where you're going to need a leader in a pinch. So we always try to move dogs around. And then I know a lot of dog mushers have a very specific team placements for the dogs. So they'll have wheel dogs and, and team dogs and swinger point dogs. And of course, they're their go-to leaders. But I'm a big proponent of training dogs wherever in the team, whether they be point dogs or swing dogs or leaders or, or wheel dogs, and then move them around because you don't want them to get stuck in that rut. And if you train them to be leaders, obviously they can step up in a pinch. And I like to equate a dog team very typical to uh, an American football team. You have your offensive linemen, you have your specialty players like your, you know, your running backs and your your wide receivers, and then you have your quarterbacks, which are typically the lead dogs. And often you'll see in a football team those teams are sometimes interchangeable. The you know the the quarterback may may go out for a pass, or a running back may have to block or whatever. And if you can move them around it makes it much easier to have a fluid team. 
I, from, you know, obviously I don't have personal experience running a large team like that, but from a training standpoint, it makes sense to me that you would want the dogs to build a variety of skills. You would want them to generalize those skills. And I would imagine that that variation also helps keep it interesting for the dogs. So I imagine that that has the potential to build even stronger dogs. Oh, of course. You know, if a dog can do multiple positions, it makes, I don't want to, I don't want to sound callous, but it makes his worth a heck of a lot more if they're able to do that. Instead of being so specialized as, as leaders or wheel dogs or, you know, whatever, monosport dogs, you know, this dog can only run, you know, cane across, or this dog is only good on a small team or whatever. Uh, you really find yourself pigeonholed with uh, with teams like that if if dogs are, are vetted, very delegated to only one task. And when you're dealing with with a kennel the size of ours, and ours is considered a medium sized kennel, we have 34 dogs. Uh, you have to have positions for those dogs where they're going to fit in the best, whether they're in you know uh, 10 or 12 dog strings or, or or bigger, you want them to be able to fit in multiple spots in order for them to to uh, to succeed the best that they can in, in their positions. Now, I always think it's interesting talking to people about lead dogs because this is something that obviously for our our people who still have small teams, whether that's a single or two or three dog team, basically they're all lead dogs because they're all out there in front responding to those cues. When you are building your lead dogs and really deciding who has the potential to be up front and guide the team. I imagine that response to cues or commands is really important and some trail savviness on their part. Talk to us a little bit about specifically what you like to see in a strong leader. Strong leaders are are very special and I can probably name off all of my best lead dogs that I've had in, in 20 or 30 years, and, and and I could probably tell you very specific traits about each one of them. But finding that that spark, that, that ability to lead, that ability to keep the line tight, all of those things, it, it's, it's, I don't know if it's trainable. You know, a lot of people think, oh, well, it, it, you know, you can train any dog to become a leader, yes, but they, these dogs become so special. And, you know, there, I could probably tell you stories about how uh, one of my sled dogs, Sydney, uh, a leader from from Hugh Neff, pulled me over one of the mountains in the Testamina 200 single lead. Uh, it's just you know she stepped up at that point and where everybody else was pretty much giving me the finger and they said, "Hey, we're not doing this. We're not going over another mountain." And you know it's two or three o'clock in the morning and I put Sydney up there and and uh, told her, "Let's go," and she took off. Or you know as I mentioned earlier, the lead dog that can teach other dogs. Mm-hmm. Or uh, the the dog that uh, is a little bit tougher in the head than some of them, you know, not as as goofy as they say. Uh, and I find, and this is kind of interesting, I've found that my best lead dogs happen to be females. I don't know why that is, but uh, they always seem to perform the best for me up there in front. I imagine that it takes a certain sense of resilience and focus to be up there versus being, you know, behind further behind in the team. It does. And as I mentioned, we try to make sure every dog has their chance up there and, and they'll prove their worth up, up there, whether they can can do it or not. And it, it takes a special 
type of dog to be able to do it on a consistent basis. But we find that we point we put a lot of our younger dogs up in those uh, second, third positions, that swing and, and point position, so they can have the ability to learn up there, so they can watch their, their, their teammates doing what they do. And if you have a dog that's in swing, and for folks that may not be familiar, you have your leaders and you have the two dogs behind them. Those are what we call swing position, and they they are truly learning from the dogs in front of them. Uh, you know, they learn to listen to the cues by following the body language of the dogs in front of them. So when we say gee or haw or whoa or stop or let's go or whatever, those dogs are learning from the others because if they don't, they're going to run up on their butts and, you know, kind of get run over uh, if they if they don't learn. So they learn very quickly to to watch the cues from the others. I th- I think that's so interesting, you know, watching animals learn from each other, because obviously as a dog trainer, you have to be able to learn from your dog. You have to be able to observe them and respond to them and learn from them. And that makes you a better trainer. And dogs certainly learn from each other too, whether they're learning good behaviors or behaviors that we might not want them rehearsing. And one thing that you mentioned was letting dogs be dogs, right? Making sure that the dogs have the opportunity to kind of let loose and just do dog things. But as our team grows in size, we certainly need to be careful about managing relationships of the dogs. How do you structure your, quote, dog time where they can just let loose and be dogs while still keeping, you know, everybody friendly with each other? Because certainly as we add dogs, that becomes more challenging. That's a great question. Uh, With us here, um, we find that, uh, let me back up. I guess the biggest part of of our program is we don't have a lot of we don't have a lot of litters. We don't do a lot of breeding. So in the time in Alaska, I think we've only had four litters. So that's very few dogs over a twelve year period. And of course, those dogs are raised together from from you know from infant, uh, as, as the youngest puppies. So. If you can bring them up that way, they learn to associate that that, uh, that that bond together. So I think that's an important part of it. And then as we progress throughout their lives, they, um, of course, once they go out into the yard, things change a little bit. But we have, in the summers, we have a lot of free time, a lot of free running time. Uh, we have time in the play yard where they play together. But again, there's, you know, we talked about aggression. And dog aggression is a real thing. And... Um, that occurs. So we have to be very mindful in our management of them. Some dogs don't like other dogs. We have to be cognizant of that. And I tell my um, dog owning uh, clients, you know, the pet owners, that dogs don't necessarily need dog friends. Uh, they, they are sometimes okay with just being single dogs. And, you know, it's a little bit difficult when you're thinking about mushing, but that can be managed. If you have a, a feisty male dog, it's best to put them with a... Uh, with a female on the line or vice versa. If you have two dogs that are not getting along uh, as kennel mates, maybe don't run them on the same team. That's sort of thing. Yeah. And I imagine that that can get tricky because it's not like we just have infinite amounts of space. You know, we, we have our, our home and our home set up and certainly we need to be mindful of that as we're adding other dogs into the mix. You mentioned raising the dogs together, and I think that's really important. One thing that people can struggle with, particularly from the pet dog side of things, 
is raising two dogs of similar age together. Often the term littermate syndrome is thrown around and it can certainly complicate things. As you're raising your litters, how do you balance the idea of them being of a same age, particularly when they become teenagers, maybe get a little more rambunctious and might struggle in their relationship versus them learning how to be kind of confident, uh, strong dogs when they're not with their littermates? Yeah, that litter rate syndrome is definitely a real thing, not only with pet dogs, but uh, with working dogs as well. And you have to be able to be mindful in your management of that, because uh, especially with male dogs, and especially as you mentioned, that uh, that juvenile years, those teenage years when, uh, you know, the sex hormones are, are, are definitely heightened, uh, you have to be able to manage that. And, and the way that we do it is our dogs do not go down to the dog yard until they're about five or six months old. So they, they of course, are, are uh, up in the, our house part, which is kind of on top of a hill that our kennel is, is down below. So they stay up here together, uh, first, of course, being in the house as, as very young puppies, and we'll move them to uh, kennels outside in the yard, then, of course, down into kennels in the, in the dog yard, and then later to their houses outside. And I think if you have that progressive management of your dogs, it's a lot easier to to uh, kind of coordinate behavior versus, oh, well, you know, there's six months. Let's put them with the other dogs and, and pray for the best. It often doesn't work out that way. But uh, if you're not mindful of that management process, those are the dogs that are not socialized and, and, and sort of thing. And one thing that we do that a lot of other folks don't do is since we teach classes at the universities and, and you know, that sort of thing, our dogs are very people socialized. and that's, that's an important part of our program because if they can't get along with people, you know, if they're shy or fearful or whatever, they do not make good dogs to, to work in those programs. So we, we teach them from puppyhood that uh, they need to be very people focused and not just dog focused. And I think that that's an important part, part of our program as well. Yeah, I want to get back to the management thing in just a second, but kind of going off what you just said about uh, socialization, obviously, we talk as, as professional dog trainers, we talk a ton about socialization and how it's not just exposing your puppy to new things, but building those positive associations so that they learn that new is good, new is okay. I imagine that with larger teams and more dogs at the house, that one-on-one -on -one socialization time can be challenging to get in because you've got so many other dogs. What kind of things when they're young do you focus on? You mentioned taking them to maybe group classes where you guys are teaching or or to uh, into town to the school. Are you bringing them there and doing basic manners, basic attention, kind of trying to help them build those positive associations? Um, you know, it really depends on the dog. Some dogs are are much um, more focused on being with each other versus, you know, kind of hanging out in the house and, you know, doing that sort of thing. And and people always ask that question, well, how, how can they stand to live outside all the time? And when you have 30 dogs or so, obviously you can't have 30 dogs in your house. But if you have a team of two, three, four dogs, it's much easier to manage that house time. But with us, one of the things that we do, and we've done it since we pretty much started up here in Alaska, is every dog gets a, a day. And every Friday, we have 
uh, a dog day where we'll take the dog into town with us and we'll, we'll have a puppet you know at Starbucks together and that sort of thing. And I think that's very important where they are literally the focus of that day. So I always post on Facebook, you know, it's it's uh, Sydney's day or Bodie's day or, or whomever's day and you know we'll take pictures together and we'll go to the park and that sort of thing. And if the if they are able to do uh, quote unquote pet dog things as well, like going to PetSmart or Home Depot or something like that, we will we will do that. But again, it goes back to genetics. Some dogs just don't like to do those things just because of their of their wiring. So we have to be cognizant of that. But if you can socialize them and and, and be involved with other dogs and other people, you're going to have a much more uh, ro- uh, kind of rounded, robust dog than you would just a dog out there in the yard, you know, as a, as a sled dog or whatever. I think that'll resonate with a lot of our pet dog people because oftentimes as we start building these multi-dog households, we think, well, every time I go out, I got to bring all the dogs. And while there is some benefit to being able to take the dogs out all together and work them and kind of get them in that team mindset, I really emphasize myself as well giving time to each individual dog, not only for that bonding purpose, but you will get to know that individual and figure out maybe where their strengths are and where their weaknesses are. And that ability to learn the dog kind of off the trail, I think will really benefit you and your team when you then get back on the trail. Yeah, that, that's a great point. And even with your kids, it's, it's best to have daddy daughter day or 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 something like that where they're they're, where they're truly the focus i think that's a big part of of socialization as as uh as humans as dogs as as kind of living together uh in 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 harmony with our animals if we don't do that it's so difficult to to rein that back in as their older dogs if you start as puppies or with your kids if you start as them with being little kids, they come to expect that. Oh, it's daddy daughter day. We're going to go have lunch together or whatever. You know, it's, it's so, it, it's so crucial to their development, whether they're people or dogs for sure. And then once that happens, uh, everybody becomes, they, they learn to expect that. They know when the dog truck pulls up, oh, I might be able to go or they become okay with different surroundings. You know, they're not fearful of the dog truck. They're not worried about leaving their litter mates and becoming so dog focused. Now they can be people and dog focused. I think that's an important part of it. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we often think of dogs, um, you know, really bonding with people, probably a lot of pet dog people will really see that. But if we just let dogs be dogs, they are the same species and they communicate with each other much more clearly than uh, oftentimes people communicate with dogs. And so being able to take them kind of away from their housemates or their yard mates and spend that human time with them is super important for them. For sure. I think that's, that's uh, exactly uh, what we're talking about. Now, one thing that you mentioned is management. And obviously for our smaller teams, we're going to have a lot of people that are, are still having hundred percent house dogs because we've got enough space and the ability to do that. But I think that that idea of different levels of management still really plays true. You mentioned, you know, having the dogs in the house and then a little bit outside the house and slowly over time as they get a little bit older, moving them down into the yard. And that same level of management can certainly be true in pet dog homes as we're integrating, 
younger puppies in with older dogs, making sure that those relationships stay um, stay good, you know, that the dogs are still able to be around each other. And I find that for people that if they're bringing in older puppies or older dogs, that can be a little bit more challenging. Have you ever brought older dogs into your kennel and, and worked on managing that relationship? It becomes much more difficult. And the same with pet dogs, as, as you mentioned, when you have, uh, you know, you, vice versa either. If you, if you have an older dog and you bring in a puppy or you have a puppy and you bring an older dog, a lot of people struggle with that because, as you mentioned, dogs will be dogs. Uh, you know, a lot of times, a buzzword back in the day, a lot of times people thought there there was a big association with, you know, alpha dogs and, you know, beta dogs and omega dogs and all of this. And that's sort of fallen out of fashion now today. And, and that goes right back to what we were talking with the TV trainers back in the day. Everything was, oh, you got to be the pack leader and all this. But if you understand, truly understand your dogs, you'll understand you know, what their limits are, what their quirks are, what their abilities are. And then you can, you know, we keep talking about management, but it's not really management. It's awareness because mm-hmm. management means you have to do something that's very rigorous. But if you're aware with, you know, what this dog is capable of or not, at that point, you can you can add different variables together that it allows them to either be with other dogs or be outside or inside or whatever you're going to do. And that will really play into it. And I know that you keep bringing up the, um, the smaller dog households. I think a big part of this is make sure you have a plan going in, you know, don't say, Oh, I want to be a dog musher uh, right now and expect to be running races in a couple of months in December or January or whatever. Take your time, get a mentor, learn from others, listen to podcasts, watch videos. Don't just run out and just get to, you know, I said that that's what I did. I'm sure a lot of us have. Don't run out and just get two or three dogs and think, oh, this is going to happen. Uh, dogs are, are special creatures and they take a lot of time. They take a lot of money uh, and uh, a heck of a lot of effort to uh, to be successful. And success doesn't mean winning races or anything like that. Success means having well-rounded dogs that that will listen that will perform for you that are happy members of your family and all that yeah so obviously having a background in professional dog training gives you a lot of insight into dogs in general their ability to communicate with each other you know understanding canine communication and stress signals understanding learning theory and how to apply it do you think that that's given you a unique insight into how you handle your dog team today? On both sides. I I tell people all the time, I literally live with a pack of sled dogs and I spend most of my days watching canine behavior. And I know a lot of dog trainers would love to have that in their wheelhouse where they can Uh go down and and just kind of sit on the ground and watch 30 dogs interact, you know, their, their body language. Are they, are they playful? Are they, um, you know, are they rambunctious, feisty, aggressive, whatever? And what are the cues to that? Uh, I think that that's a big part of my career and something that I definitely do not take for granted where I'm able to just sit, watch, and observe. That's an important part of that. And then on the other side of that, uh, the background, as you mentioned, in sort of the theory of dogs and dog training, 
goes a long way in, in understanding how dogs learn, how they respond, how they communicate on both sides of it as well, whether they're pet dogs or working dogs. Now let's flip that around. Do you think that your experience that you've gained now having all the sled dogs and working with them, do you think that that's improved your ability to train pet people with their dogs? Uh, that's a good question. I think that uh, I, I am a uh, right now, and, and this is sort of humbling, but I think I'm a much better dog busher than I am a dog trainer uh, because I've been doing dog training for so long. I know there's a lot of new ways and, and things out there that, that, that people do for, for their pet dogs. So now I sort of have a uh, more of an opaque lens at, at pet dogs than I've had in, in the past because I'm so used to working dogs and, you know, high drive dogs compared to the lazy golden retriever or, you know, the, the, the toy poodle or something like that. Now, don't get me wrong. I could definitely uh, teach uh, an owner how to, to work well with their dog, but I think more than ever, uh, I am comfortable in sort of my working dog world where, where I find uh, the most enjoyment and uh, hopefully the most success. I would imagine that it does give you some insight into helping people understand that dogs need to be dogs. I imagine having so many dogs, watching them interact with each other, kind of getting used to that multi-dog dynamic gives you a unique insight into going into pet homes where people might have unrealistic expectations about what they want to do with their dogs. Well, I think an important uh, thing that we need to mention is when we say dogs need to be dogs, that does not mean that they're ruling the house. They're, you Correct. know, they're, they're, you know, tearing up the furniture and getting on the counters and tipping over the trash and all that. When I say dogs need to be dogs, uh, they, you have to understand what their needs are and, mm -hmm. and whether that's, um, you know, uh, exercise or in, enrichment or whatever that is, there has to be human intervention there because, you know, there is no such thing as, as bad behavior with dogs. Dogs are being dogs. So it is our job to teach the, the dogs what we expect. And mm -hmm. that comes through training and, and bonding and relationships and all of that. Whereas dogs being dogs, that can be a positive or negative. Dogs being dogs could be a perfectly trained house dog, or it could be a perfectly on-point protection dog or uh, detection dog or whatever. Uh, when I say dogs being dogs, that is harnessing their ability to, abilities to do what they're bred to do. Yeah, I think that's so important. With, with a lot of our clients, we talk a lot about breed-specific outlets because at the end of the day, whether your dog is purebred or mixed breed, they have natural instincts in there that go back to those breeds. They were bred to do a certain thing. And I think that giving them that outlet is really important for their mental well-being. And a lot of the we'll say, quote, problem behaviors, you know, that people are seeing are just those breed needs not being met in some way. And I love what you said, too, about there are no bad behaviors. Those are labels that we put on dogs and we put on their behaviors. But ultimately, at the end of the day, whether we're doing in-home manners or, you know, trail etiquette with our dogs, it's up to us to show them what we want them to do and make sure that those are the behaviors that are getting reinforcement. Yep. It's all about shaping. It's all about timing. It's all about routine. All of those buzzwords in any dog training program, you, you'll hear those over and over again. 
But I think uh, one of the big driving home points of this conversation is making sure that you have those those relationships from the very beginning. Uh, and yep. and that, that could be as, as uh, getting that dog as a puppy or even a mature dog, understanding what needs to happen for that relationship to be successful. Yep, absolutely. So for our listeners who are just getting started looking to build their team, maybe moving from single dog, two dog, three dog and up, if they don't have access to a local club where they can hook up and run with other dogs, what kind of advice would you give them so that they can find success in building a team? Well, you know, I, I think uh, Facebook and social media is a blessing and a curse for just about everything in life, but in particular, dog mushing. Uh, there's just so much information out there, good information, uh, great groups out there where you can join and, and uh, really learn from, from people that have been doing this a long time. But also that comes with, with a caution that, uh, you know, don't take everything that you see as, uh, as the right information. Make sure you do your homework. You know, is this the right fit for me? You know, us training sled dogs in Alaska is a heck of a lot different than training a, a dryland team that lives in the suburbs of, of uh, any, any large city in, in the United States. It's going to be in a different environment, different trails, different uh, encounters, all of that. So don't take um, everything that you see, whether it's on Facebook or social media or podcast or YouTube or whatever, do your homework and really learn from that. But also, as I said, get out there and, and mingle with the folks that you want to be involved with. Go to, go to races, go to club meetings, go to um, uh, groups that get involved with it. It doesn't have to be you know, a mushing club. It could be uh, a, a recreation type um, club that, that gets out and does things with their dogs. I think that's key because that that um, that build up to what you want to do later is very important, I think. Uh, whether you're just getting out and walking on the trails with your puppies or, you know, attending ski door events or bike door events or whatever. And, you know, I interview mushers all over the world. And I would have to say that uh, that uh, these monosports that you talk about, that's the future of the sport. It's not the big teams. It's not Iditarod. It's not uh, sprint mushing. It's these one, two, three, four dog teams that are going to be the future of the sport for sure. One, one thing you mentioned earlier, too, is finding a mentor. And I think that that can be challenging or intimidating for some people who might not have a lot of those connections. Any advice for people when they're looking for a mentor or how to ask people for some guidance? You know, mushers typically love to talk. Uh, we both have a podcast where we're talking about mushing. So I think people really love to tell stories and talk about uh, their dogs and their experiences. But finding a mentor is, is tough if, if you don't know where to look. Uh, you know, as we mentioned, Facebook is a great place. Uh, clubs are a great place. But it does not hurt to ask. You can always reach out to me. I'm sure they can reach out to you and say, hey, do you know anybody that can help me with XYZ and I live in New York or I live in Montana or California or whatever. And hopefully through my contacts or yours or whomever, we can steer you in the right place. And it's so easy now where somebody can send me a message and say, hey, I live in this place. Do you know anybody in my area that can help? And then we just put them together on a, on a message and, and say, hey, here is, you know, Mary Smith. Here's, uh, here's, 
you know, John Johnson, uh, you know, here, can you guys introduce yourself to each other and just kind of go from there? Yeah, I think that's great. It's hard. It can be hard and it can be intimidating as someone coming into the sport to try to find those connections and reach out. But, you know, as I'm sure with you, one of my goals is just to kind of get more information out there and help people learn about the sport. And there's a lot of really great things we can learn just from listening. You know, even as a professional dog trainer, I'm learning new things about dog training all the time. And I think that's one of the, my favorite things about it is that we can always learn little tidbits from different people. So having that open mindset and being able to just listen and learn, I think is really helpful as well. Yeah. As we mentioned, podcasting is a great way. And I think that you're, you're reaching a different audience than I am. And I think that that's so important. Uh, you know, we're, we're more of a storytelling podcast versus you're more of an information type podcast. And I think both of those really fit a niche that is so important uh, in kind of our world of dogs, whether it be training or, or the working dogs or sports or whatever. So I have to commend you with that. And I think you're doing a great job. Thank you. I appreciate that. I also listen to your podcast. I'm a big fan. So for those of our listeners who might not be aware of your podcast, do you mind? And I'll include this in the show notes as well. But do you mind kind of listing where people might be able to follow you and connect with you and your podcast? Our podcast is DogWorks Radio. You can find us on any platform, I believe, Apple, Stitcher, iHeart, Pandora, wherever you can find us. Uh, we can also, you can also find us on social media, just search dog works radio, and you can follow me on any channel as well. Just search Robert Forto. Awesome. Thank you so much, Robert. I really appreciate you taking out the, the time of your day to come and hang out and talk with us. It's my pleasure. Thank you. So until next time, have fun chasing tails on the trails.